You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 20, Thermidor. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time in August of 1794. Napoleon's career was at a low ebb, indeed the lowest it will be until 1814, when France's enemies forced him to abdicate his throne and sent him into exile. General Bonaparte was in jail. He had aligned himself closely with Maximilien Robespierre and the Jacobin political faction so closely that when they were toppled from power and executed in the so-called Thermidorian reaction, he went down with them. We've talked a fair amount about Napoleon's relationship with the Jacobins. Now that it's over, I think it's worth a final look. I'd point to three main factors that drove Napoleon into an alliance with Robespierre. The first was high-minded. After witnessing so much of the violent upheaval and moral ambiguity of the revolution, Napoleon was, by now, no longer an idealist. However, he remained sincerely committed to radical Enlightenment principles, convictions he shared with the Jacobins. The second factor was personal ties, most notably that long-standing patron-client relationship with Antoine Christophe Salicetti and his burgeoning friendship with Robespierre's younger brother, Augustin. And finally, there were more selfish motivations. In revolutionary France, political connections could be a path to military promotion. Napoleon's performance in the field had been a big part of his rapid ascent to general, but he had also been absolutely shameless in utilizing the patronage of his powerful friends. I think it's clear Napoleon's association with Jacobinism came out of some combination of those three factors. We can't see into his head, so I won't hazard a guess as to which was dominant. I don't know if Napoleon was fully aware of the risk he was taking by tying his career so closely to the fortunes of a specific political faction, but if he was, I'm sure he would have done it anyway. He was a gambler by nature, and always saw himself as a political actor as well as a soldier. Whatever the case, and whatever his motivations, he had bet big on the Jacobins, and lost. He'd enjoyed the benefits of being a political soldier, now he was getting a taste of the drawbacks. Ironically, Napoleon didn't even like Maximilien Robespierre, who he considered bloodthirsty and tyrannical. 
The new Thermidorian regime imprisoned Napoleon at the Fort Carré, an old fortress in the town of Antibes on the Mediterranean coast not far from Nice. The conditions were not bad. He was essentially just locked in one of the officers' quarters. They allowed him books and writing material, and visitors were permitted. Napoleon's faithful assistant, Jean-Andoche Junot, paid him a visit, and, true to form, laid out an audacious plan to break him out of prison. Napoleon was touched, and probably a little bit amused, but poured cold water on the idea. He told Junot, quote, Men may be unjust to me, my dear Junot, but it suffices to be innocent. Do nothing. You will only compromise me. End quote. Maybe Napoleon was putting on a brave face to save a loyal subordinate and friend from getting himself killed in some harebrained scheme. Maybe he trusted his remaining political connections to save him. Or maybe he really was still naive enough to think innocence alone could save a man from the guillotine. He busied himself studying while he awaited the outcome of the inquiry. The Thermidorian reaction was a turning point for the whole country, not just for Napoleon. Once again, the entire political landscape of France had shifted. Robespierre went from unquestionably the most powerful figure in the country to under the blade of the guillotine in the space of only a few days. How could such a dramatic transformation have happened? I'd like to take a closer look at some of the factors that led to Thermidor. It's been a while since we took stock of the bigger picture. Examining the question, how did Robespierre fall, is a good framework to do that. In some ways, the Jacobins were victims of their own success. Let's go back to 1793, when the Jacobins seized power. The country had been in a grave crisis. Foreign armies were advancing unchecked on all sides, and the Royalist Rebellion in the Vendée was gaining steam. There was a widespread fear among the supporters of the revolution that all the political achievements of the preceding four years would be snuffed out, along with their lives. This was the climate that gave birth to the Jacobin coup. The Jacobins claimed only they had the ideological commitment and force of will required to fight a total war, save the revolution, and save the country. Supporters of the revolution were willing to make a lot of sacrifices towards that goal. They flocked to join the new volunteer units in the army and put up with the bloody repression of the terror and the social disruptions caused by the levee en masse. They put up with the dictatorial, authoritarian aspects of Robespierre's government. They even put up with some of the more eccentric aspects of Jacobin rule, most notably the cult of the supreme being, a new religion inspired by classical Rome and the Enlightenment, untainted by royalism, that was introduced as a replacement for traditional French Catholicism. However unpopular these measures were, a significant portion of the population preferred them over a return to the old regime, and whatever else they were doing, the Jacobins were keeping their promise to turn the tide against the forces of counter-revolution by any means necessary. By the summer of 1794, that tide had definitively swung the other direction. The Federalist Revolt was defeated. The Royalist insurgency in the Vendée was contained. The coalition armies had been pushed almost entirely out of France, and Republican troops were fighting in enemy territory, conquering land from the reactionary regimes. 
As you heard last time, the army of Italy was experiencing success in the Alps against the Austrians and Piedmontese. On the Spanish front, the last remaining coalition strongholds on the French side of the Pyrenees were surrounded, and General Dugamier was preparing for an invasion of Catalonia. The deficiencies of the old-fashioned Spanish and Portuguese armies were beginning to show. In Germany, the French held much of the western bank of the Rhine. In July, Republican forces defeated a Prussian-led army at the Battle of the Vosges, forcing the coalition out of the last remaining area of French territory they still occupied on this front. Just like in the Alps, even when the coalition won battles, they often found themselves outmaneuvered, forced to retreat by the faster Republican armies. Most of the action that year was in the Low Countries, still generally considered the main theater of the war. Here, the coalition had started the year strong, but the French counterattacked under General Jean-Baptiste Jourdan. In mid-May, the Republicans began a relentless push through the Austrian Netherlands, modern Belgium, including two big victories at Courtrai and Tourcoing. Within a month, the French were besieging the fortified city of Charlois, the last Austrian stronghold in the region. The coalition made a strong counteroffensive to lift the siege, and met General Jourdan's army on June 26th, near the town of Fleurus. What followed was a furious battle that lasted most of the day. The French were pushed back, but the Allies hesitated before following up on their success. Jourdan counterattacked, and the coalition were forced to withdraw before they could reach Charlois. The Battle of Fleurus saw the first ever use of an aircraft in warfare, a primitive hot air balloon called the Entreprenant, which hovered above the battlefield, dispatching reports of coalition troop movements and sketches of enemy formations. I think there's some nice symbolism there, this avatar of progress and modernity being deployed in a struggle between a revolutionary republic and an alliance of reactionary monarchs. Casualty numbers are sketchy, but Fleurus was a bloody battle by 1794 standards. Several thousand men on each side. Sadly, it had all been for nothing. Charlois had surrendered to the Republicans the previous day, and the Austrian government had already decided to give up on Belgium and focus on other theaters of war. The French celebrated. With the victory at Fleurus, the Republic controlled all the territory in the Low Countries up to the Rhine River. This was a strong defensive position on France's most vulnerable border. The city of Antwerp, with its banks, merchant houses, and busy port, was now in French hands. Jourdan and his generals began planning an offensive into the Dutch Republic. The small Dutch army was now weakened, and Amsterdam was only about a hundred miles away. That's 160 kilometers. They stood a real chance of forcing the Netherlands out of the war in the near future. So, by the late summer of 1794, revolutionary France had the momentum in the war for the first time. The Republic was still facing incredible odds, at war with almost every other country in Western Europe. But this no longer seemed like a desperate gambit for survival people began to wonder if the French might win. Even as they suffered casualties in the field, the Republican armies were still growing. The calls for patriotic volunteers and the levee en masse were paying dividends. 
the army's leadership crisis was over. Almost all the royalist officers were now dead or fled, and after over a year of combat, capable men were rising to replace them. Along with all these military successes, there were favorable geopolitical developments in the East. The partitioning of Poland between Prussia, Austria, and Russia the previous year was coming back to haunt the great Eastern powers. On March 24th, 1794, in the city of Krakow, in Russian-occupied Poland, a group of young liberal noblemen made a fateful announcement. Poland, they said, was in a, quote, abyss of misery, end quote. They pledged to pull the country out with a radical program of reform. They declared that the liberal Polish constitution of 1791 was back, along with additional civil rights for the peasants, effectively ending feudalism. Tadeusz Kosciuszko, a well-known liberal and veteran of the American War of Independence, was appointed commander-in-chief of the remnants of the Polish army. He swore a now-famous oath before the citizens of Krakow, quote, I, Tadeusz Kosciuszko, hereby swear by the God of the entire Polish nation that I shall not use the powers vested in me for anyone's oppression, but for the defense of the integrity of the borders, the restoration of the nation's sovereignty, and the strengthening of universal freedom. So help me God and the innocent passion of his son, end quote. The Poles would fight for their freedom. What has gone down in history as the Kosciuszko Uprising had begun. In France, the revolutionaries cheered on the rebellion. On top of the obvious ideological similarities, the uprising had massive strategic benefits for France. Austria and Prussia now had a major distraction on the other side of their domains. For the Eastern powers, this was now a two-front war against the forces of liberalism and revolution. Since 1792, the Western European powers had been lobbying Russia to join the coalition and declare war on France. With Poland in rebellion, any chance of that went out the window. Poland and France were too far away to forge any kind of effective alliance, but they were now fighting the same kind of war against many of the same enemies. Each country sincerely hoped for the other's success. When Kosciuszko was ultimately defeated, many veterans of the rebellion found safe haven in France. This was the beginning of a sometimes complicated friendship between France and Poland that would be a feature of European culture and geopolitics well into the 20th century. But, fascinating as Kosciuszko and his rebels are, we are talking about the fall of Robespierre here. So, to sum up, the strategic situation of the Republic was improving by leaps and bounds. You might think the Jacobins would have gotten credit for turning the war around, but that's not how politics works. In every country, in every era, the public asks the same question, what have you done for me lately? Instead, now that the pressure was off, people started to look at the government in a new light. With the nation out of imminent danger, those radical, authoritarian aspects of the Jacobin regime suddenly seemed a lot less tolerable. Furthermore, the way the Jacobins fought the war had inadvertently eroded their own power base. When the government called upon all patriotic Frenchmen to join the army and fight to defend the revolution, 
they were effectively telling their most fervent supporters to leave Paris. By mid-1794, many of the men who had taken to the streets to support the Jacobins in 1793 were now hundreds of miles away, in uniform at the front, or buried in hasty mass graves at the battlefields along France's borders. Meanwhile, draconian Jacobin policies inevitably alienated people on the home front. It was one thing to support the terror in the abstract, but many found it much more difficult to stomach once they'd seen it up close, particularly those who lost friends or family. Robespierre himself only made things worse. A more flexible, pragmatic politician would have seen which way the wind was blowing and moderated his policies. Instead, Robespierre doubled down. He always had a puritanical nature, but as the stress of his responsibilities began to wear on him, he became even more self-righteous, uncompromising, and dogmatic. Just as people were growing weary of the terror, Robespierre began expanding it, broadening the definition of treason. First, to any elements he deemed subversive, then to include anyone within the government engaged in corruption. That last point in particular touched a nerve. By our standards, the revolutionary government was hopelessly, almost laughably corrupt. The French Republic was only a few years old. Its civic culture was inherited from the old regime. Under the monarchy, government positions were not some sacred public trust. They were pieces of property to be bought or sold and used however the owner saw fit including personal enrichment. And this was an era in which family and personal ties meant everything, so what we might call nepotism or cronyism were a normal way of conducting business. All of that was supposed to have changed with the revolution. Self-interest was out, patriotism and the common good were in. But old habits die hard, and corruption is always a temptation for government officials even in places with long-standing democratic traditions. Whatever his other faults, Robespierre had a vision of public service that was much closer to ours. That's why they called him the incorruptible. When he started to get serious about rooting out corruption within the convention, a lot of powerful people got spooked. By Robespierre's standards, almost all of them were guilty. There was no telling who he might denounce. And so, in the face of this anti-corruption campaign, the whispers of dissent against Robespierre and his allies multiplied and grew louder. Conspiracies began to form. Eventually, these conspiracies within the convention coalesced into the coup which sprung on the 9th of Thermidor. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
A lot of people, from all over the political spectrum, present Thermidor in largely ideological terms. That assumption is built right into the name we give it, the Thermidorian Reaction, implying the men who carried it out were reactionaries, or at the very least, to Robespierre's right. There's some truth to that. As I've already laid out, public opinion was moving away from radicalism. People were getting sick of the more extreme aspects of Jacobin rule, especially the terror. Robespierre and his allies were not moving with the changing winds, which gave the Thermidorians an ideological opening. However, it's simplistic to look at this as conservatives seizing control of the government to turn it in a more right-wing direction. For starters, none of the coup plotters can really be described as conservatives. They were all enthusiastic revolutionaries, long-time advocates of the radical ideals that had underpinned the Republic. Most of them were members of the Jacobin Club, and had voted to execute the king and abolish the monarchy. Some were considerably more radical and zealous than Robespierre himself. To take one example, one of the Thermidorian ringleaders was Joseph Fouché, easily among the most ruthless members of the convention, and generally considered to be on the far left of the political spectrum. His merciless tenure as a representative on mission punishing captured Federalists in eastern France had earned him a nickname, the Executioner of Lyon. His falling out with Robespierre came in part due to his opposition to the cult of the Supreme Being. Most people disliked the cult because they preferred Catholicism. But Fouché objected from the left. He was a strict atheist. Fouché's brutality eventually earned him a reprimand from the convention. But he defended himself, quote, The blood of criminals fertilizes the soil of liberty, end quote. So, not exactly a mild-mannered centrist. Fouché's closest accomplice, Jean-Lambert Tallien, was a former protégé of the radical journalist Jean-Paul Marat. Tallien had experience with this type of plotting. He'd been among the leaders of the coup which brought the Jacobins to power. He'd also helped plan the September massacres. So the idea that these guys were ideological moderates, or that they were so repulsed by the violence of the terror that they were moved to stop it by any means, well, I don't find it even a little believable. The Thermidorians were savvy political operators. You might even call them unscrupulous. They could sense the rightward shift in the political environment. They knew the terror was becoming unpopular. But how could they put the brakes on such a draconian policy without suffering blowback themselves? After all, everyone in the convention was complicit. Some of the worst offenders were party to the coup plot. One attractive way out would be to create a scapegoat, and who better than the politician most associated with the terror, Robespierre. But it was probably Robespierre's crusade against corruption that weighed heaviest on their minds. This was an imminent danger to all the Thermidorians, but it was also a powerful weapon. Want to recruit someone into your anti-Robespierre conspiracy? Whisper into their ear, a friend of a friend told me you're being investigated for corruption. True or not, you are guaranteed a receptive audience. So, powerful as Robespierre was, many of his colleagues had strong incentives to see him fall. 
when the opportunity appeared in the summer of 1794, they acted. The new Thermidorian administration was more conservative than the Jacobin regime, but out of necessity and opportunism, not conviction. For the first time since 1789, the French government was in the hands of open cynics rather than idealists, or at least demagogues who could convincingly fake it. These were men who wanted to use their power to ensure their own survival rather than change society. Some historians call the Thermidorian reaction the end of the French Revolution. I'm not sure I agree, but I can see why they might say so. It was certainly the end of something. Whether or not the revolution was technically over, the last traces of hope and idealism which once fueled it were gone. After years of turmoil, uncertainty, and broken promises by a whole string of governments, the public had grown jaded. Many became politically disengaged and apathetic. Now, with the conniving backroom operators of Thermidor in charge, France truly had leadership that matched the national mood. But despite this surge of cynicism and disillusionment, neither the public nor the Thermidorians were ready to bend to the demands of the coalition. That grand, idealistic vision of transforming the world was fading away, but it was being replaced by a kind of grim determination to see this thing through and defend the gains of the revolution. On August 24th, Napoleon was released into this new world. He'd spent about two weeks in custody. I think in a sense, he was well prepared for the new political reality. He too had grown more cynical jaded by the hypocrisies and failures of the revolutionaries, and weary of all the bloodshed. You will probably not be surprised to hear that, once again, Salicetti had acted as his guardian angel. Salicetti was a Jacobin and a firm Robespierre supporter, but he could wheel and deal with the best of them, and had managed to preserve most of his power and influence, despite the change in government. Once the dust of the coup had settled he pulled some strings to help his old client. At least, that's the traditional story. There's also a far more sinister version. According to some sources, Salicetti himself was responsible for Napoleon's arrest. The way this story goes, Salicetti panicked when he learned of the fall of Robespierre. He worried the Thermidorians would launch a bloody purge, and so denounced Bonaparte as a way of deflecting suspicion from himself and getting in good with the new regime. If Salicetti's relationship with the Robespierre brothers came under scrutiny, he could turn Napoleon into his fall guy. But once it became clear the bloodshed was over and there would be no wider purge, he backtracked and ordered the man investigating Napoleon to quote-unquote discover evidence of Bonaparte's innocence. I certainly don't find this version far-fetched, given Salicetti's reputation for ruthlessness and intrigue. There's not a ton of evidence for this version of events, but then again, even if it was true, there wouldn't be, would there? However it happened, Napoleon was free. He returned to his post with the Army of Italy at Nice and received a new mission. With the Republicans advancing on every frontier, there would soon be only one place left where the enemies of the revolution occupied French territory, Corsica. Pauli had allied with the British. The island was now home to a garrison of redcoats, 
and the main base for a large British fleet operating in the western Mediterranean. Some in the French Army High Command and the Convention hoped to change that. Unsurprisingly, Napoleon Bonaparte was a strong advocate of this course of action. He wrote to Paris, quote, It only remains for us to deliver Corsica from English tyranny. The season is favorable. There is not a moment to lose. The Spanish have returned to their port. We have fresh news from Ajaccio, and very far from having increased the defenses in that interesting part of the island, they have, on the contrary, stripped the citadel of some of its munitions. With eight or ten thousand men, twelve ships of the line, in this season, an expedition to Corsica would be a walk in the park. To drive the English from a position that makes them masters of the Mediterranean, drive them from the only department which they still occupy, punish the rogues who have betrayed the Republic, rescue a great number of good patriots who still live in this department, and return to their homes the good Republicans who have rendered themselves worthy of the regard of the country by the generous manner in which they have all suffered for their principles. There, my friend, is the expedition which must entirely occupy the government. End quote. Who do you think he had in mind when he wrote about the good Corsican Republicans who suffered for their principles and should be rewarded? Given his background and his success in planning the Saurgio campaign, General Bonaparte seemed like the natural choice to plan an invasion of the island. Shortly after his release from jail, Paris gave Napoleon the go-ahead to begin the process. He must have relished the prospect, a chance to redeem himself by returning home at the head of a conquering army, only a few years after slinking away into exile. And of course, a chance to go another round in his Oedipal struggle with Pauli. But planning the reconquest of his homeland would soon be relegated to a side project. In September, the Army of Italy went on the move. The Austrians and Piedmontese launched an offensive along the Mediterranean coastal plain, seizing territory in the province of Savona, from which they could threaten France's critical trade routes to neutral Genoa. Technically, Savona was within Genoese territory, but these types of violations of neutrality were quite common in this era. After all, what was tiny Genoa going to do about it? Invade Austria? Complain to the United Nations? Clearly, the coalition commanders hoped to avenge their defeat at Saorgio with a quick victory or two before the winter snows, which would soon make campaigning in this part of the world impossible. It's unlikely the perpetually moribund General Dumerbion cared what the coalition was doing, but his more energetic subordinates were not having it. The Army of Italy was not prepared for a significant operation, but they managed to scrape together around 15,000 men to enter Savona and evict the Austrians and Piedmontese. General André Massena took overall command, with General Bonaparte in charge of artillery. They moved quickly. Just as they had at Saorgio, Massena and Napoleon used the speed of the Republican troops to outmaneuver their opponents, forcing the coalition forces into retreat without fighting a battle. On September 20th, an elite Hungarian light infantry unit made a stand at an old medieval castle and managed to hold the French off through several hours of hard fighting. The Republicans eventually pushed them out, and upon doing so, the reason for the battle quickly became clear. 
While the Hungarians bought time, the whole Austro-Piedmontese army had deployed into a strong position about 7 miles or 11 kilometers away, just outside the town of Dago. It was an imposing position. They were daring the French to attack. But Masséna did want a battle. He held the advantage in numbers and morale, and worried the enemy would slip away back to Piedmont before he could strike a decisive blow. Despite the strong defenses, Masséna knew he might not get another opportunity. The French attacked. Napoleon wrote a letter just two days after the battle, in which he described the ensuing events in detail, so I'll let him take it from here. He throws out a lot of place names in this passage. Don't worry too much about trying to orient yourself. For one thing, I actually suspect he's misidentified a couple of the towns. And for another, I couldn't find any good maps of this engagement. So just try to get a general feel of what the battle was like, and how Napoleon saw it. Anyway, here's the first Battle of Dago, in Napoleon's words. Quote, At about two o'clock in the afternoon, we discovered the enemy. They had rested their left and right flanks on mountains, which they esteemed to be very strong. Their center was entrenched behind the village of Bormida, and supported by their artillery. Their lancers, who were their only cavalry, maneuvered on the plain. They tried to hinder us, nothing more. If we had thought that they wished to wait for us until tomorrow, we would willingly have postponed the engagement. But certain that they would flee during the night, we immediately made our preparations for an attack. Six battalions and some pieces of mountain artillery marched over the mountains on the right and had the order to turn the enemy left take up a position on the road from Dago to Spigno, and, by that operation, cut off the enemy retreat. Two battalions were sent to drive the enemy from the position that safeguarded his right. The rest of the army arranged itself in a line of battle behind the village of Roqueta, with the cavalry and artillery. All these dispositions could only be completed very late. The left attacked, and having charged four times, captured the heights which the enemy occupied. The fire was very lively on the right, where the enemy had placed much of his strength. We drove them from part of their positions, but the very dark night did not permit us to advance any further. The center attacked with great vivacity. The enemy retreated everywhere, and their cavalry, so brilliant in its maneuvers, thought it wise to not wait to face our own in close combat. Night separated us. We bivouacked on the field of battle. We deployed our artillery in order to strike them down at the break of day, but the enemy did not judge that they should wait for us. They marched a night and a day without stopping. His losses are estimated at a thousand, or twelve hundred men. The field of battle, his supply depots in Dago, and even his wounded remained in our hands. Thus, his designs on Savona have been thwarted for the foreseeable future. The combat at Dago would have been decisive for the Kaiser in his territories of northern Italy, if only we had three more hours of daylight. End quote. So, in case you lost the thread somewhere in that flowery 18th century prose, it was a hard-fought battle, but the French ultimately pushed the coalition forces back all along the line. Unfortunately for the French, by the time they had precisely located the enemy position and deployed their own forces, it was already afternoon. Night fell before the battle could reach a decisive conclusion. 
Masséna planned to follow up on his success the next day, but the Austrians and Piedmontese slunk away under cover of darkness. Napoleon believed the coalition had narrowly escaped a total defeat that could have left all of northern Italy open to the French. I have my doubts. This was the main coalition field army in this theater of the war, but modern historians estimate it was only about 8,000 men. Even if the entire force had been annihilated or forced to surrender, 8,000 men was a drop in the bucket compared to the total strength of the Austrian military. It would have been a stunning loss, to be sure, but as we'll see in the future, the Austrians were willing to fight very hard to maintain control over their wealthy northern Italian possessions. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a bit of an obscure battle, and it's not well documented. We are not even sure which regiments participated. The French claimed they only lost 160 men, and inflicted over 1,000 casualties on the coalition. The Austrians claimed to have killed or wounded 2,000 Frenchmen, at the cost of only 203 coalition soldiers. Neither claim seems remotely credible, given the description of the battle we just read. Whatever the true numbers, Napoleon was correct about at least one thing. The coalition invasion of Savona was over. The French victory in the First Battle of Dago signaled the end of the campaign season of 1794 in the Alps. The Austrians and Piedmontese were so shaken by their defeats during this year that their governments entered high-level negotiations to completely reorganize the defense of northern Italy. The French shook things up too. In November, old, sick General Dumerbion was finally replaced, no doubt to the great relief of everyone involved. The Jacobins had kept him around because he was scared of them. But now the Jacobins were gone, and the new government preferred a competent commander to a pliant one. The Army of Italy would be Dumerbion's last command. He retired from the army in 1795 and died in 1797. On paper, he left behind a distinguished record. In reality, he'd spent the most glorious moments of his career in bed. Regardless, in recognition of that record, the name Dumerbion is inscribed under the Arc de Triomphe, among the names of France's greatest commanders of the revolutionary era. That has to rank as one of the greatest participation trophies of all time. Masséna's name is inscribed only three spaces away, even in death, two centuries later, he is still stuck with the old man. Dumerbion's replacement was General Barthélemy Scherer, a career officer who had fought well in the Rhineland. Scherer didn't fear politicians. He despised them, and he really despised officers who played at politics. Bad news for Napoleon. The Jacobins may have been gone, but Bonaparte's reputation as a politician's pet remained. Scherer soon fired Napoleon, and brought in his own man to command the artillery. He wrote back to Paris that Bonaparte was, quote, 
too much given to intrigue for promotion. End quote. Harsh, but certainly not unfounded. I doubt Napoleon was pleased, but by now his mind was elsewhere. Specifically, Corsica. His planned expedition was approved, and by the spring of 1795, around 17,000 troops and 15 ships of the line were assembled at Marseille. Paris had actually sent him more than he had asked for, which I believe is a first in his career. On March 3, 1795, they set sail for Corsica. From a narrative standpoint, I wish I could tell you a story about Napoleon returning home in glory, finally seasoned and self-confident enough to take on Pauli, his former idol, and win. If this was a movie or a novel, that would be how it ends, wouldn't it? Unfortunately for Napoleon, the Royal Navy did not have much of a sense of drama. Almost as soon as they left port, the expedition was intercepted by a British blockading squadron, who sent them scurrying back to Marseille. Whatever grand plans Bonaparte had drawn up for the reconquest of his homeland, the French Navy was simply not up to the task of getting him there. The invasion was cancelled. I think I'll leave you on that anticlimactic note. Next time, we'll discuss a period of lull in Napoleon's career. But as you've seen by now, he never stayed idle for long. Just because his career wasn't going anywhere doesn't mean we won't have anything to talk about. Until then, thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.